Hi everyone, it's Jen. I have a brief preface for this month's episode. First of all, the audio quality is a little rough on this one, but I believe that you'll find the discussion extremely worthwhile, so thank you for bearing with us. Secondly, I made an error when I referred to a Blu-ray of the film, which is the topic of discussion. It doesn't exist. The Devils is currently available from the BFI on a feature-packed two-disc DVD, not Blu-ray, and as you'll soon find out, I suppose we should be happy that it's available at all. I believe we can blame Warner Brothers, who hold the rights, for refusing to release a more complete cut, not to mention agreeing only to a standard def release. Oh, and while I'm here, in our discussion of the set design, we forgot to credit the late Derek Jarman. Mr. Jarman, wherever you are, I'm sorry for the omission. That's it. Please enjoy our episode on Ken Russell's The Devils. Welcome to Have You Seen This, the podcast about obscure, overlooked, and misbegotten cinema. All discussions will be spoiler heavy. You have been warned. Have you seen this? I'm Jennifer Albright. I'm Tim Heidrich. Today we have a very special guest and I'm extremely excited. And we're talking about a really fun movie, especially for all you last Catholics out there. Uh, <laughs> our guest is Gretchen Felker-Martin. Thank you for coming on the show, Gretchen. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me, Jennifer. I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm good. What are we talking about today, Gretchen? Today we're talking about Ken Russell's The Devils. Hell Yes, I love it. Yeah, this hell movie. indeed, yeah. <laughs> oh my god, it's so fucking good. And we don't need to be broken on the wheel to talk about it or anything. Like, we'll it's do it true. of our own volition. <laughs> um, before we uh, jump into the orgy, uh, Gretchen, where can we read your writing? Because I'm a very big fan of your media criticism, which I find to be a cut above what you usually find on the internet. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I have a column on the Verve blog, that's VRV, um, and I've just started writing at Fanbyte, F-A-N-B-Y-T-E. So that's, uh, I mean, I, other than an occasional piece on Polygon, that's where you'll find my stuff. Great, cool. and uh, you are also scumbelievable on Twitter. Please follow her, she's great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, if you have to follow anyone on Twitter, yes, it, sh- it should be me. Ideally, you just shouldn't be on Twitter. <laughs> that's, that, that is the lesson that Tim learned early yeah. on. And Tim, Tim's the smart one here. Right, yeah. It, it's a close second. If you have to be on Twitter, follow Gretchen. <laughs> Ken Russell's The Devils came out in 1971. Very controversial film and actually very hard to see. Um, I was slipped uh, the most complete copy possible by a friend of the show, Alex uh, Prophet Kodo on Twitter. Thank you so much. You really saved my bacon because I couldn't get the Blu-ray, unfortunately. Um, yeah, we did have a devil of a time finding this when we were trying to watch it. <laughs> when we were trying to watch it on our own years ago, it was impossible. Yeah, we well, it like just a- goes to demonstrate the yeah. problems we're having in film archives. <laughs> Archival film preservation. Yeah, like normally, um, this has been re- released on a, um, I think, a two-disc Blu-ray in the UK. Um, 
But for a lot of years, you had to rely on really inferior like VHS rips or, you know, a DVD that was out for maybe like five minutes before it got pulled because, man, does this movie fucking offend people, which, you know, it should. It's great. Yeah, it it ought to. Right. Otherwise, what are you saying? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it is based on a book called by uh, Aldous Huxley called The Devils of Ludon, which is about a case of possession which uh, takes place in a small French town. I don't know. Uh, have you read the book, Gretchen? I haven't, but I'm familiar with the history. Yeah, uh, do you want to kind of describe the situation for us? I mean, so even though the movie is really overblown about all the, like, scheming that Cardinal Richelieu does to, to unite France under under the crown's rule and sort of strip the provinces of their power and fortifications... It's essentially pretty accurate, um, you know, but it takes place in this really unstable period in French history where the crown and the church have been at each other's throats for years, where at the tail end of the whole Huguenot debacle and the persecution and, and brutalization of Protestants throughout France, um, and here's Loudon which is fortified and largely self-sufficient and which has a very charismatic and well-loved priest as it's it's you know it's basically its administrator and the establishment wants so badly to be rid of him that they sort of pursue all avenues until they settle on this completely gonzo, well, he invoked a bunch of devils, and they went into all the town's nuns, and they all had a bunch of crazy, terrible sex. Yeah, like so we better put him on trial. (laughs) I heard from a guy who heard from a guy who saw something that there may have been a devil somewhere in Ludon, so we we gotta raise the city, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and the um, obviously um, the movie somewhat streamlines the story because in the in the book, um, Grandier is um, a very sensual priest, uh, much beloved of the the good ladies and widows of the town, and he's he's pre- he's fairly unrepentant about um, you know being a, a womanizer and you know right. a, a sensualist, and this enrages. Uh, the other nobles of the town, but in in the book they're really unable to take the guy down in spite of him just you know blatantly like you know getting laid and corrupting women. Right. Well, you'd had like people on the altar. Yeah, <laughs> he had a nice little life carved out for himself, and you really get a sense of that in the first part of the of the film, which is he's pretty much you know he's kicking ass and taking names. He's uh, shutting down the uh, you know the crown's kind of. Uh, in position into tearing down the walls. He's like, you know, I'm basically in charge here. Mm-hmm. He, and I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself in the story, but I mean, there's a whole scene about, you know, one of his, uh, one of his conquests falling pregnant. Yeah. And the way he deals with it is completely unrepentant. And it really shows that he's, I, I mean, he is, um, uh, I get, he's, he's a flawed character. He's very, he comes across very, very callous and he's very, um, I think in love with his status and his power in the situation where it's like, where she, she's like, you know, I'm, I'm wrecked. You got me pregnant. What are you going to do? And he's like, yeah, what can you do? And like, that, that's, his, that's his engagement in it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think that the way that he, uh, the way he puts it is he's kind of like, well, this is, 
you must learn to bury your cross, my child, which is like, damn, that's cold. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it really is a sucks to be you kind of <laughs> in a way that he approaches um, it. But at the same time, you really get the sense that he loves the church and Catholicism and God in a way that basically no other character in the movie does. Yeah, that is. He's, he's still upset when she uh, when she profanes in the church during confession. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think he genuinely believes, like, even though that he's broken all his vows and been rotten and awful, that all of those things are still very important, and he'll hold other people accountable to them. <laughs> yeah, well, because even a religious figure being a hypocrite, I, I'm afraid I don't follow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because like even you know in the book, um, you know this is basically like a very uh, charismatic but, but caddish priest kind of becoming a martyr because there is a, an explicit point in the book where he realizes the magnitudes of his own sins. You yeah, know, and then he and then he accepts the presence of of Jesus and you know blah blah blah. He goes to his his torture and and burning. Um, yeah, there, there is a redemption by the end of it. But yeah, you also get a sense too in the beginning that um, he's really blind to the way that because uh, like uh, what is it like? Um, it seems like kind of a, a, a libertarian in particular point of view, which is like you know the system that put me at the top must be the right system, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah, so he's very much in love with you know. He, he believes and he buys it in the church because it certainly has done well by him. Yeah, and I think that... Um, Even if he doesn't, like, embody the things that the church is supposed to embody. And again, right. like, it's, it's explicit in the source it, that, um, you know, I think that the real uh, Grandier's arrogance is that he believes that, you know, I that because he has not really done anything wrong, that eventually the truth will out. He'll be restored to his place as you know, the yeah. the parson of Ludon and everything will be fine. But I don't think that he doesn't realize the forces that he's set against and, you know, just kind of like the, the implacable evil. Well, he's a big fish in a small walled pond. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Essentially. But, um, you know, so him not realizing the forces that are arrayed against him, which goes all the way up to um, Cardinal Richelieu, you know, yeah. um, I don't know. Oh like, my how god, you... Christopher Logue is so good in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking getting carried everywhere on that weird upright slab. <laughs> oh my god, I love him and his greasy hair and his weird teeth. He's so good. And his, his giant rings too. Like if ever, oh my god, yes. There's a bigger signifier of like the opulence of the of the church. Yeah, like that really that kind of that sums up Catholicism right there. Yeah, that's. Just, that's in like the first shot is like this lounging, you know, uh, whatever religious uh, figurehead he's a, he's a with, like, yeah, yeah, the yeah. cardinal with like a a giant gemstone ring on literally every finger. Yeah. Well, the first shot, the first shot is. Uh, oh right, the yeah. Stage. Oh. And, and the birth of Venus. Yeah. With the king. <laughs> yeah, the movie opens with a drag cabaret act. Right. Yeah, yeah. my mistake. Yeah. And it, and it rules. It yeah. really rules very hard. <laughs> um, I love I love the opening of this movie. Yeah, I love I love the title drop where it's like the devils right over the king and the cardinal. Like these guys are the devils. Everyone. Yeah, yeah, that kind, of, <laughs> that kind of sums it up. And um, yeah. it really that was really well done, right? And um, 
it, Russell's kind of stock and trade is this, um, he plays out with anachronism and theatricality, and, you know, he just, he sets you right off, you know, with, with the opening scene, which is, uh, you know, the, the king basically doing his little Birth of Venus mm-hmm. cabaret. And then, you know, there's a very simple um, premise is like, you know, we're trying to consolidate Catholic power in France. You know? Yeah. And then you get the title, The Devils. That's that's it. That's right. the evil. Yeah. Let's be evil together, though. <laughs> yeah. Enough of squabbling amongst ourselves. But, um, okay, okay, I want to talk about torture. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did want to go back to that. Because yeah, we let off of first, that. One of the first things that you brought up was um, the torture Verisimilitude of Brandy, yeah. which um, is absolutely brutal in the book. And I wonder, and I it had been so long since I'd seen the movie, I wondered how, I was like, how do they do it on the screen? I was like, oh, damn, like, they don't really pull any punches, do they? Yeah. <laughs> they really don't. Um, and, and there well, are a lot... No, oh, yeah, and there were, like, other, you know, historically accurate details, too, about, you know, like, the executioner leading him up to the pirate and being like, hey, you know, like, I can just strangle you first. Like, you know, you don't have to actually burn to death. We can strangle you to death and then burn the body. Yeah. Because it was kind of like a convenient out yeah. for for being, you know, burned alive. It's like, well, we'll kill him first, and then we'll burn him for the spectacle so the crowd gets to have their fun. But we don't need to, like, make him suffer. It's kind of like the last, <laughs> like, we we can't prevent you from being killed, but we can't prevent you from suffering. Yeah, kind of. but it's, uh, he doesn't turn it down. It's just that they light the pyre before it can be done. Yeah, yeah, and that is kind of harsh, too, because it's his um, little uh, acolyte friend who, like, he, he had uh, absconded with the rope so that right. he couldn't, he couldn't yeah, strangle him. Um, Again, it, um, you know, it's right out of the book. I, I believe that in the book, um, a capuchin monk, like, fixed the noose so it wouldn't actually, like, pull tight so it was useless. But yeah. it's kind of the same thing where it's, like, the rage of the exorcist priest prevents Grandier from his, uh, you know, any any bit of mercy yeah. whatsoever because he just likes the pyre and it's like, oh, shit, now everybody's lighting it. And like, oh, sorry, like, I can't get through the flames to strangle you. Mother yeah, God, this is like, are we going? Oh, we're going? Oh, we're doing this? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought you said on three. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, um, you know, kind of going back to like, um, you know, Granny's like torture and martyrdom. Um, I guess he's, um, you know, <laughs> they apply, I guess they call it the question. <laughs> yeah extraordinary what is the matrix yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to take either pill. yeah um and uh they it's not a pill it's a sacrament <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Um, i'm not sure um i'm not sure what you call that that mode of torture um gresham have you read up about it ah uh, yes um, <laughs> i'm at a, a loss but i know the technique is that you place someone's leg inside a wooden frame mm-hmm. and then you hammer a wedge in yeah. such that it deforms the bones and eventually breaks them. Um, and that's what I'm most interested about, about the torture in The Devils, is that it's not the pain that is the object. It's much truer to history in that the real threat is mutilation. Mm. you know permanent breaking of the body right because um, remember at the end Grandier can't walk anymore yeah you yes. drag him to his pyre and he's he's just a wreck his yeah. limbs don't work and they're like raising his tongue too like beforehand yeah yeah so 
yeah, it's this whole ordeal, like literally, of, of of them trying to get him to confess. Yeah, and that um, and basically sell out imaginary people as well. Yeah, and like the the breaking <laughs> that you mentioned is very interesting because um, part of his punishment is they want him to go to the convent and kneel down and you know ask for forgiveness from these nuns that he's supposedly defiled, but it's. They've completely obliterated his legs. Yeah. He can't kneel. Yeah. You know, it just shows the complete, like... And short-sighted, yeah. (laughs) It just shows how completely nonsensical, you know, these... Everything is. Yeah, like, it's like absurdity compounding upon absurdity. Mm. I love that scene where they take him to the convent, and for for a second... It looks like Sister Jeanne is going to apologize to him. Like, she's so absolutely horrified at what's been done to him. And then she just, you see her pull back into herself. She doubles down. She, like, I think she spits at him or, or you know, abjures him or something. It's yeah. beautiful. You can see someone almost being brave enough to be a good person for a second. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, um, she is kind of like, ah, oh, this got a little out of hand. Yeah, she does have, in spite of being, um, you know, basically because um, she's, you know, she's the the head of the convent, the mother superior, and like a lot of the, like all the other nuns, she's sexually obsessed with this unattainable priest, but that obsession curls into hatred. She then turns, she turns it against him and, you know, that leads to his downfall. Um... Did you say like all the other nuns or like all nuns? Because I just want to be sure. <laughs> just, just every nun. Yeah, every, yeah. Because like, like there's this absolute frenzy when, you know, at the, you know, he's in a procession at the beginning and they're like stepping on each other's heads to try to get a look at him. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, cloistering will do that. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, there are a couple of moments when she does have like remorse. Like there's a point where she tries to hang herself, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, but they, I, I, I love her. I think she's a really unique, wonderful character. I've never seen anything like her. Yeah, and you, you got you got handed to Vanessa Redgrave. She just holy shit does not hold back whatsoever. Like, and it, it, it is absolutely incredible. Like, that, uh, oh shit! That that first uh, like ecstatic dream sequence that she has of him yes uh where she's washing his feet with her hair yeah he's he's personified as christ and there's this crowd looking on and then the wind blows her hair and it it reveals her her scoliosis she has a hunchback yes and she starts screaming at everyone as they laugh at her i'm beautiful i'm beautiful and it's just like god it hurts (laughs) yeah there's there's like definitely like a tragic sort of inner life in that character yeah that gets exposed and you know uh Huxley does a pretty good job at um kind of summing up like you know her her character and like how she is psychologically i think they actually mention in the movie um i think i think through uh through the mother superior herself like she says i forget if she says to madeline or somebody else you know she's like do you know why most women enter a convent 
Right, and it's because like, their families can't afford them. Yeah, Madeline's <laughs> like, well, it's because you're you're devoted to service, and you know you're devout. And she's like, it's just like, oh, honey, no, yeah. like, it's strictly <laughs> like dumb idiot. Yeah, yeah like, it's strictly a, a practical matter, and you know, in the book, um, Jean is a very, um, you know, again, like of noble birth, you know, like educated, um, yeah. but. A kind of, you know, like her... Um, a Pollyanna, maybe? Yeah. Well, her, um, you know, because she is, she's like very small and like, you know, she does have this deformity, which is, you know, kind of made her like very, you know, she's very intelligent, but also like very sharp-tongued. Okay. And I feel like the convent has only made that worse. Right, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. You know, like the, um, the kind of cloistering away. Well, yeah, in the same way that... You know what uh, Oliver Reed has been like. His character has been, you know, corrupted by the system. Where it's like, oh, I can kind of like act with impunity and do whatever I want. Like this is great. Yeah, the church right. is awesome. And no matter what, I'll be surrounded by beautiful clothes and sumptuous places to live. And yeah, the church will be mine to command. Yeah, their their goldfish bowls shape them definitely. Right. For yeah, sure. to the point where he's like, yeah, I'm a priest. Well, why shouldn't I get married? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I haven't had any consequences up until now. Just yeah, keep, and, keep on keeping on. Yeah, because he falls in love with uh, Madeline DeBrew and um, actually marries them in the church. Like he marries See, himself to Madeline. I always feel when I watch this movie that there's this kind of weird purity to that. That it's not, it's not all arrogance. No, I agree. Well, yeah, it's it's, it's kind of like him going straight and settling down. Yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, because he's been a he's been a libertine up to this point, but he um he um Madeline says that she loves him and he admits as much to her that he does love her. And um he's the one who convinces her, like, no, it's actually it would actually be okay for me to get married, even though I'm a priest. Yeah. And it is a very solemn and, and pure scene, the one that you're alluding to, you know, the yeah. performing of the ceremony. Yeah, he's tr- he's trying to go straight, but the church just pulls him back in. <laughs> they just won't. They just won't let him. They yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's tortured to death. Oh my uh, god, he is so fucking hot in that movie. He's just he's like magnetic. This, like yeah. Oliver Reed. Um, I don't know if the audience knows much about Reed. Um, very. Prolific actor, I think, possibly um, because he was one of those actors who was often obligated to just take whatever work uh, was coming right. his way. Um, not hating, just saying, working actor like any other. Yeah, hey, um, that's the nature of it. So he's made a, he he made a lot of movies. He made a lot of crap, but you know he is one of the most magnetic. British actors. Yeah, it's like he worked a lot and he got really good at his craft. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, he was good from like the the start. Even in you know, he's in some really like you know kind of rinky-dink productions like early in the the sixties. Even before he was in, you know, he was in the other um, Ken Russell film that I think he's maybe possibly best known for, Women in Love. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But. And, you know, he, yeah, he was like a, a violent, mean, drunk, like sexist to the point where um, Shelly Winters poured a drink over his head on live TV. Yeah, you really, uh, there, there's no real defending his yeah. IRL character. Um, 
<laughs> Very oh rakish. God, what an actor. No, absolutely. And like you um... And again, I just I want to double down on this. Insanely hot. <laughs> well, weren't you talking about this on on Twitter? Oh, well cast then, yeah. Well yeah, but you were talking on Twitter about um kind of the death of the hunk in yeah, cinema. Yeah, he's you know, he's sweaty, he's kind of thuggish. Yeah. He doesn't he doesn't really look like a priest. He's got that scar. Yeah. Um, Which a real got... life um scar from a bar fight. Yep. Of course, in yeah. Sixties, which I think took like thirty stitches to close up. Yeah, it almost cost him his career. Yeah. Mm. Um, as did fucking the wife of a producer at MGM, which <laughs> cost he... him his chance of being James Bond. Uh, <laughs> well, the heart wants what it wants. And you know, that's... can you imagine that would have been so good? Anyway. <laughs> yeah, that would have been well casting for Bond. Yeah. Yeah, because um, really. I think something that's lost in treatments of Bond is, like, the brutality of the character. Yeah, that's why I like Craig as Bond, is that he's a thug. Oh, absolutely. Like He's not... always, like, one bad day away from an emotional breakdown. Yeah, Craig <laughs> is not, um, does not have the refinement of, you know, I mean, not like, not like Connery is refined, but he could be smooth, you know, right. that goes for Lazenby, certainly for... You know, fancy lad like Roger Moore. Yeah. You know, but but yeah, like like Oliver Reed, like yeah, that that is that would cut right to the the brutality and like the physical presence. And it's also true in this film, like he has this tremendous physical presence, but also this. Um, one of the things I was struck most about was his voice. Yes, it's so low and raspy, and commanding. Yeah, very commanding, and but also, um, you know, speaking with tremendous like um, intelligence and articulateness, and you know, he's like and contempt, just yeah, contempt, <laughs> like refined at the same time he's commanding. It's a, it's amazing, like just a really just unbelievable bit of casting. They should remake this with Matt Berry from. IT crowd. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> the James Mason esque. Yes. Voice. <laughs> it it's a bit like touching a corpse, wouldn't you say? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like oh, the plague scenes in this movie are amazing too, and and that that brings me to to Russell's sets, which are insane. Yeah, yeah, insane. Yeah, like I think that um. And we can talk about Ken Russell a little because, like, again, like I mentioned, like, he plays with anachronism. He certainly does yeah. that with the sets. Yeah, Luden was the original White Castle, right? <laughs> this, no? <laughs> <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> you, do not, you do not want to eat that sack of ten. Right, yeah. <laughs> I'll see myself you out. You truly don't. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, the, like, the gigantic pure white battlements and, like, the totally antiseptic interior of the convent. Everything is just so weird. Yeah, it and alienating. Is. I know that um, in Huxley, and I guess I'm not an expert, so uh, maybe one of you experts can fill me in, but um, I guess that this was a thing in convents where you have these kind of, like, grates, so you couldn't, like, access the nuns, but you could speak to them. Well, yeah. And that's true in, um, you know, that's true in the movie, too, but um, the the set doesn't seem so much a convent as it does an insane asylum. Yeah, that's that's definitely not by accident. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, for sure. <laughs> Easier to hose down the nuns that way, I guess, and all the white tile. 
<laughs> yeah, because they need hosing down with the with cold water. Right, for real. Yeah, there's there's some uh, there's a, well, there's that whole cut scene of the nuns just running rampant well, on the yeah. crucifix. Oh, and we'll get to that. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Because, yeah, those nuns get real crazy. But, yeah, so you have, um, like, mildly anachronistic set, very stark black and white. And, uh, Gretchen, I didn't know if um, maybe you wanted to hold forth a little bit on the on the sets and the set design. Oh, my God, I could talk about Russell's sets all day. Something I really love about them in this movie is that I feel that almost all of them, basically all of them, speak to this idea that these people are, are surrounded and that their lives are bounded in every way mm-hmm. by systems that are unstoppably huge. Yes. And, and that they will never escape or change. Um, so, you know, the church where uh, the, the Loudon's Cathedral, um, which I think a lot of it is done with matte paintings, which is very impressive, mm-hmm. is cavernous you can't even see the vaulting and the ceiling above um and then you know like we were saying the convent is blank and empty and cold and pretty much every space we see it is so monumental it looks like it could never ever be moved yeah, you certainly see that with the uh, with the walls surrounding the city. Like you know, they look you know at a minimum of like ten feet thick. Like, and there's right. no outside world beyond that. Yeah, I mean, it's really just sky that you're seeing. And you you contrast that too with again like how stark and black and white the the scenes in the city are. But then you cut back to because um, there is a sort of uh, argument by proxy um, between. Um, uh, what, when uh, Oliver Reed is, is uh, sort of laying out his uh, beliefs, and then opposite him, there is you know the the cardinal um, uh, talking to um, what's the name of the king about um, about how they have to kind of bring uh, uh, bring uh, you know, bring the city into into the fold basically to unify France. And you notice how like bright and colorful that scene is in compare in in contrast. Right. Between the two of them. Yeah. So like, whenever we see color in the city, it's, you know, like plague fires. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. yeah it's like, it's like plague or like aristocratic decadence. Even and, then, they're always wearing black and gold, white face paint. Yeah. Mm. And um, it's interesting, Gretchen, what you said about um, the kind of theme of confinement. Um, there's also scenes, I think uh, it's um, Richelieu talking to. Labardemont, um, who later comes to the city to try to tear it down and then becomes part of the, the machine massed against Grandier. Like, I don't know what the hell building they're in, but it literally looks like a prison. It's, oh, they are in a prison. Yeah, it's it's just, it's bars. Yeah. And black and white. And meanwhile, Richard's being like wheeled around like like Hannibal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so interesting to me. Uh, from a directorial standpoint, as far as I know, uh, the real Richelieu never had, you know, gout, was never uh, paraplegic. Um, I so believe he film, was sickly, but... Um, yeah, that much I know. Yeah. And it's not like wheelchairs were were unknown then, mm-hmm. but visually it certainly it makes him look of a piece with the world he's constructing. You yeah. Know, blocky. And 
sort of visually joyless. Yeah, like mechanistic and... Right, 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 right. That's what I'm trying to drive at. Hmm. I, maybe I'm making a, an uncomfortable connection there, but... Yeah, you can kind of make a connection to that, like, visually to, like, Brazil, I want to say. Like, I think of a lot oh, of the, yeah. Like, yeah. the confining hallways and, like, the large edifices of kind of the, um, like, the government uh, buildings there. Yeah. Like, I always think of uh, Raise the Red Lantern. There's a yeah. wonderful, wonderful Chinese movie that takes place almost entirely inside this wealthy nobleman's compound, which is, I mean, there's probably, like, 20 people total inside it. Mm-hmm. And it could probably house a thousand. It's <laughs> just from the beginning, any attempt they make to have lives of their own is fucking doomed. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of sums up well, too, isn't it? It's a space that could fit a thousand, but there are twenty people in it. Right. Yeah. yeah. It must and be nice. Like, look at the fucking current housing crisis and right, real, yeah. where we are now. It's like there are empty buildings, but you know, people are getting typhus on Skid Row because. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> but um, yeah. So you have these really, you have these stark um black and white sets, like these um kind of allusions to like confinement and prison and madness, um, which kind of which is kind of wrestled like really effectively setting the scene for you know some pretty brutal injustice. And, uh, I mean, you know, it's, um, I don't know if it's problematic to say, but like madness, you know? Yeah, no, I I agree with you. Yeah. And it is, you know, it's, the movie is about repression. Mm -hmm. The nuns are repressed and have no outlet. Yes. Um, and so they sort of fester and curdle inside that repression you know, there's that speech Labartimore gives about uh, sensualism and how even their self-mortification inevitably just makes them fucking hornier. Because <laughs> <laughs> all it is, is is sensual stimulation. Yeah. Um, and there, there's no way out of it. And then you have Grandier who can do as he likes and has all the same impulses as these mm-hmm. women. Um, but, like is more or less a well-adjusted dude by virtue of being able to go where he wants to go. That's a really good point. He's not a a model citizen, but he's also not a lunatic. Yeah, he does have an an outlet. He is a sensualist, but, you know, his, um, his sensual practices are blessedly normal compared to you know, all the weirdos around him. Well, it's not even that. It's that he gets to do them. Right. <laughs> you know, in, the, in the absence of any kind of catharsis, <clears throat> I don't think it's very surprising for someone's sexuality to become increasingly separated from the real world. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hard like, to believe that this movie's not any awesome. forum. <laughs> Sorry, say again. I just said, look at any forum. Well, <laughs> there is that. Um, but yeah, like, um, you know, hard to believe for a movie about Catholicism, but yeah. Yeah. Repression and, and, 
And Cat- man, Catholics just love their S and M, don't they? Right. Yeah, and <laughs> it is interesting too that like you know his lack of boundaries has been really you know freeing to allow him to develop into the kind of person he is versus the nuns that are on the opposite end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. completely repressed, and how those two extremes both kind of lead to. Problems, I guess. <laughs> well, problems depending on, you know, whose toes you step on, I guess. Right. Well, and I guess the problem is, is that, um, you know, ultimately Grandier is going up against Richelieu. Right. And, um, the, and the nuns are kind of a, a useful idiot in that regard. Like, they're, they're a means to an end. Yeah. Right, they're a convenient victim. Yeah. There you go. Um, and, God, that whole, that whole thing is, is so sad when they they bring sister jan out to answer questions uh when they're first trying to start the case against grandier and Mm. it starts to like devolve into theater so they bring out technicians and have her raped in front of everyone yeah and Um, um again this is russell translating huxley very well because um huxley is very explicit about it in the book in like ever since you know he's like yeah this is essentially someone being um sexually assaulted for the entertainment of a gawking populace. Yeah. There's a whole footnote about uh, clisters, which is the archaic term for um, enemas. (laughs) (laughs) That's a shame we don't use that word anymore. (laughs) It is evocative. Right, yeah. (laughs) And it is interesting, too, those two, like, kind of, um, uh, like, doctor-type characters that are almost kind of a... uh, comic relief, sort of like they again, like to invoke Brazil again. They seem like the um, like the duct repairmen. Oh yeah, that like they kind of they... like Statler and Waldorf. Yeah, yeah, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Um, well, yeah, because and I think I mentioned it while we were watching is that um, those are very much of a type. They're basically um, low grade bullies. They're like the Pinkertons and um, John Sills mate one. Yeah, yeah, you know, not. Not highly placed, but, you know, they have the protection of higher-ups, and they're able to do, like, incredible damage. They're a part of the system, yeah. And you see, like, their through arc, too, as well, is, um, uh, you know, he goes to, um, there's that woman that's being, like, quote-unquote cured with, like, cupping and, like, yeah, wasps and, like, leeches and all the other, like, all this other, um, you know, Dark Ages medicine. That scene is so un... The first time I watched that, I didn't want to look at it. It made me really repulsed and upset. And I think the second time I watched it, I actually started to tear up because he's so incredibly tender to her and to her daughter. And it's so... It's uh, Grandier. I mean. Yeah. And, and it's so genuine. And he really has... There's not an inch of disgust in him for this woman whose entire body is racked with boils and rotting away. Yeah, and you, yeah. and you can really see that he is he is invested in the church, and he does believe in that, you well, know, that system. He's invested in the people. Yeah, you know, yes. he 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 really truly does not consider the people he is charged with leading and protecting to be repellent or unworthy or lesser. Yeah, versus these two charlatans that are there to just kind of apply their Get snake their oil. Kids, yeah. yeah. Oh, by the way, don't vaccinate your kids. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, you're, no. Not, 
not vaccination. We'll just put a few more bullet ants on you, and you'll be all good. right. Yeah, that's that's a natural remedy. <laughs> I'm as kidding, kid, of course. As a kid whose parents did not vaccinate her properly and who had to get all of her vaccines in the space of one month, please vaccinate <laughs> your kids. Oh God. Thank you, science. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's terrible. Yeah, I'm of course kidding about the vaccination thing. Um, but yeah, and but you see, those two characters are part of a sort of um, are part of a system, a uh, a snake oil industrial complex, and yeah, they're there uh, you know, to you know, to do the the uh, the raping later, you know, yeah. by proxy, and to carry out the dirty work. And you see that by the end, you know, they kind of get their kicks in when you know he's burning at the stake and they're kind of like hey you know we're still here we continue to be part of this corrupt system meanwhile right. you know you're going to be burned to death in a matter of minutes yeah you're their, basically their you're cynicism a and parasitism has, has seen them through yeah yeah exactly um, yeah and that is infuriating too to see that yeah it's really and, um, it's very ugly yeah yeah and that's um another explicit theme in uh the source book is um is that the exorcists explicitly make the situation much worse and i think that comes through in the scene uh basically the scene of the sexual assault of uh the mother superior is um you know she's got her story about what grandia may have done to her but you're not yeah. seeing the you're not seeing the contortions you're not seeing these like overt blasphemous and sexual acts. Yeah, it's but, like we can't sell this. But the personage of the, um, I think there's just one um, exorcist in the movie, which is Barre, who is yeah. this. Um, he's kind of the. He's a rock star, basically. Yeah, he's the one yeah. Thing, like kind of tying him to the time that the movie was in is like you know he has the long hair and the granny glasses. Yeah. And he he is basically like this kind of strange like rock star presence and he basically whips um Jean and the other nuns into this absolute frenzy. Mm -hmm. and, you know, that's where the you know the performance comes out. And it's it's um obviously um you know they couldn't go into that much detail in the in the movie, but in the book, um the exorcisms are more like performances for an yeah. audience. Like people come from miles away to see these nuns do their thing, which is, you know, they contort. They yeah, it's like, have you heard of these crazy nuns? Yeah, they do the splits. They talk about like devils that are lodged in various parts of the body, just like the most insane things and the public eat it up. Mm -hmm. and all of this happened because of these exorcists who came in and, you know, they extracted this insanity from them, basically. Yeah, and you can see that he's operating himself kind of at a... Um, at like a loose tether as well where it's like he he has his you know marching orders and he can kind of do whatever he wants to get whatever results he feels like getting right and it's like saying oh you know i yeah i i, I didn't or, or even when he's talking with you know mother superior and, and she's like saying oh no like i you know i'm not really saying these things this isn't the case i'm not possessed and he's like yeah well that's that's what a devil would say to convince you that she wasn't possessed and it's like what up is down and left is right? What's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. Yeah, and um But it's because it's like, well, I was sent to find a devil and damn it, I'm gonna find one because that's what my job is dependent on. Like how can you be an exorcist if you don't have devils? That's sort of the whole crux on which that kind of justice turns. Yeah. Um it's, it's basically just 
you you come to a conclusion and then you make the situation fit it. Yeah. Something that that I find very moving about the scene of Sister Jan Sister Jean's rape um, is that it establishes very quickly something that the movie then carries forward. It's not that the nuns are not allowed to have a sexuality. It's that their sexuality belongs to the men above them in the church. Hmm. That's a really good point. And the moment it becomes useful, it's deployed against them. Yeah, because um, I guess technically they're married to Christ. Right. <laughs> but... That's an abuse of marriage. <laughs> But, um, you know, I don't, uh, Gretchen, do you want to, like, expound on that a little bit? Sure. Um, so one of the, the big scene where, where Barry really gets everything rolling is that he takes all the nuns out into the forest and he has them tied up and he says he's going to have them all shot by his guards unless they all happen to be possessed and crazy, just, just throwing some, some, some suppositions out there just spitballing yeah i mean you know he tells them you will sin you'll blaspheme and they start getting into it and and the movie sort of devolves into this carnival Mm -hmm. um where they are just letting all of their repressed sexuality flood out but it's not for them he's not doing it for anyone's benefit but Mm -hmm. his own um and yeah because again the nuns are a means to an end basically right right and and i think it's fairly safe to assume that the the liberties he took with sister jean are are, you know not confined to that scene that he is enjoying being surrounded by you know perky breasted prancing nude young women um and that so are all the men around him um, yeah, he's getting results. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe that's why t- he's this kind of, uh, you know, decadent rock star figure. That could very yeah. well be, yeah. yeah. I mean, in person and, and dress, he's very fair. Mm-hmm. But his, his manner is, is nuts. And it is. He, he is a rock star. Um, and he's, he's putting on a concert. Yes. Um, a performance, to say the right. least, yeah. Right. And their sexuality is his... You know, is white snake pyrotechnics. <laughs> um, he uses them to make himself more popular and magnetic, and therefore to make his accusations against Rodier stick. Yes. All he really needs to do is is be more interesting. Right. Yeah. Uh, which he successfully does. Yeah, it's less about being right and being like telling a good story. Right, he, he has to be entertaining, and that's that's what he uses the nuns for. Yeah, and that um, is kind of shown up too when I know he's not a king, but I keep calling him a king. Whatever when he shows, yeah, the cardinal, cardinal. When when he shows up to like the chaos in the church with all the nuns, just, you are thinking of the king, right? Okay, yeah, the king. Okay, yeah. When yeah. he's when he shows up. You know, on his, you know, chaise lounge and a mask. He's incognito, right? Yeah. Well, he's got a mask on. How could you know it was a king? The giant <laughs> floppy hat with a peacock well, feather? Or? He, he claims to be some other noble. Okay. Yes, yeah. like he's, he's but he pulls off the mask and winks at some point. Um, yeah. yeah. 
But so yeah, he has that that uh, little phylactery, and he claims that it's full it's a of Christ's blood. Yeah, yeah. And he, um, he, and the whole room goes insane. They're all like, "Oh, the devils are all cast out of us." It's definitely real. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he opens it, and there's nothing inside. Yeah. So yeah. he, he kind of like exposes the the lie that all this is predicated on. And then it just keeps going, which is one of the most horrifying things in the movie. Yeah, because you know, hey, you know, you've gotten this far. Why stop? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that, that is that does kind of come across like the whole theme of like what we've seen this whole time. It's like. Look, we need a reason to oust this guy so we can unify France, and that reason is um, uh, is uh, possessed nuns. Yeah. And there aren't any possessed nuns, and there's no good reason because we already had an agreement with uh, with you know Ludon to to keep the the walls up. But we kind of set things in motion, and we need to see it through, and then right. we'll we'll backfill the reasons. So like you know him illustrating that with the you know empty box is is pretty much giving like just exposing the whole lie of what this series of events is is predicated on yeah and that ties into a couple of interesting things um from huxley is that um you know um the thing that you've just mentioned i think ties into a very important and explicit theme in the book is that um the focus on evil rather than god is kind of where the downfall comes from. Because uh, again, like the exorcist coming around and making the entire situation worse, you know, is these people are so focused on evil acts and like throwing out devils and, and whatnot that, you know, they just end up spreading the evil, basically. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're preoccupied with devils more than yeah. anything. And, um, you know, speaking of evil, um, another explicit point um, that Russell drew, draws out from the source is um, this interesting idea that you can use basically the testimony of the devil as evidence. Um, right. And I'm not, a, like, I'm not spiritual, I'm not a theologian, but I did find a lot of the theological... Um, you know, kind of um, meanderings in the the Huxley book, like actually, like quite interesting because he is he is a he is a very interesting thinker. I mean, he also believes that ESP and automatic writing are real, but you know. Well, hey, can, can, can you lost. prove that it's not real, man? <laughs> um, but Sorry? one of the points that he makes is that um, the devil is the father of lies. Therefore, he's always going to lie. But this is something which is overlooked by the um, by Grandia's enemies and the exorcists and everyone else, like you know, perpetuating this fraud. Is you know they need they need quote unquote evidence yeah. that you know Grandia's um, debauched and possessed these nuns. So they're like, well, the devil said he did. So there yeah. you go. Like, and, more proof to right. me. And the devil said he didn't, so he must be lying. So ergo, he did. QED ipso facto. Yeah. So yeah. They, can, they basically can twist it however they want, but you know they're um, and Huxley points out, you know, they're basically going against like a tenant of the church. It's like you cannot. You cannot trust the testimony of the fucking <laughs> devil. Like, he's the fucking devil. Yeah, I thought we made this clear. He's gonna bullshit you. But, you know, ultimately it doesn't matter. You know, like, they got, um, you know, they get a hold of these, these nuns and they use them for their own ends. And then everything just kind of kicks off from there. Yeah. That, that is a good lesson from the movie. Don't trust the devil. <laughs> you know, in the context of this kind of, like, chaotic, swirling maelstrom of of social unrest and exploitation. We should talk about this movie's soundtrack. Yes. Because, 
Oh my god, it's like listening to a jar packed full of flies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that really struck me like at the the close of the film where you have Madeline like wandering down a desolate road, like just with, right. with absolute destruction in her wake and right, and those, those like, wrecked and, and broken bodies on pillars around her. Yeah, and, like, no relief, and certainly not from the soundtrack. It's, like, still, like, dissonant sound. And, like, really, like, um, you know, and I don't know how everybody else feels about, like, you know, kind of, like, dissonant classical music, but sometimes it's just, like, mm, you know? Like, it's just it's just so perfect. It really heightens the, the yeah. intent of the scene. Yeah. Um, but it, specifically, so much of the sound throughout the movie is so abrasive and in your face and uncomfortable. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's not designed to tell you what to feel. It's designed to, to make you Put feel Ill at bad. Ease. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, which I think is a, a really admirable and interesting way to score a film because the movie is about uncomfortable, awful things. Um, yeah. But geez, the last time I I sat down and watched it, um, here's a, here's a, a fun Gretchen factoid. The last time I watched this movie was with my grandma. <laughs> she recommended it, so she loves it. She saw it when it came out. Oh, awesome! Nice. Um, yeah, my grandma's hella metal. She rules. Um, That's great. Right, the whole movie it just feels like being held underwater it is so sonically intense and exhausting yes and it, it just never lets up yeah well, that is certainly like the way I, I feel coming out of the movie and i don't know if it's down to the soundtrack or the subject matter but yeah it is a really like draining film because by the end of it you're just like but i don't know it well <laughs> Russell has taken a lot of criticism for being a an excessive director, um, which like which again, wh- where's the harm in that? Well, it's like fucking whatever. Like, like have you seen this? Is an extremely pro Russell podcast. We love his excess. Yeah, uh, Freeman and Darren would certainly agree with that. I love fucking melodrama. I love over the top emotions and settings and sensations. Yeah, that's like. When you personally are having a really intense life rocking emotion, that's what it feels like. Yes. You know, that's that's why opera exists. That's so a good that, point. Yeah. So yeah. that the things that are, are everyday and quotidian inside us can be made huge and divine and, and beautiful and terrifying. Yeah, um, and I think that's why um Russell had a tendency to upset um the establishment man. Well, you know, like the yeah. not just the, oh, the audience, real. but also you know critics and whatnot. I know that um, I think Roger Ebert hated this when it came out. Like you know, Ebert. Um, Ebert was kind of interesting because he's very. Is he going to hate it because it's not like well executed? Like I, I don't. Well, Ebert. Was I don't know how we justify that. And but this was true of him and Siskel. They also tended to often have very reactionary takes about um more excessive genres like certainly okay like you got a ken russell movie um they were very anti-horror back in the day Hmm. Um, just just writing off an entire genre well yeah because at the time um so if you if you talk about the time that they were you know um 
reviewing movies together as like Siskel and Ebert, and that was kind of the the real flowering of the slasher genre. You know, your your Nightmare on Elm Street, so whatever, all the Halloween. Yeah, you know, I mean, you might be able to say it's reductive. That we really love, but um, they were offended by these movies to the point where they actually doxed an actress who was in Friday the 13th. Why? Yes. I never um, heard that. Yeah, um, so this was, and this was back when they were doing, um, most people don't remember that um, their original show was called uh, At the Movies, and this was like early in the 80s. Um, And um, Siskel wrote a review of Friday the 13th, which was like exceptionally negative. It was like, you know, okay, well, whatever, Grandpa. Mm. Um, Spoiled the film in the review. Yeah, I cannot Um, see justifying that. And then um, there was was an actress in the film called um, Betsy Palmer. And um, he actually mentions... In a um, in a paragraph toward the end, he gives the uh, the address of the chairman of Gulf and Western, which owned Paramount at the time, and then he mentions uh, Betsy Palmer lives in the little town of Rowayton, Connecticut. I'm sure a letter sent to General Delivery there will get to her. Ugh. Which is like, what the fuck? No, I. Why would you? Why not the director? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> We're the exec who approved it. Anyway, that's clearly fucking awful. And and uh, you know, I've never had any fucking interest in Siskel as a critic. I, I have a lot of respect for Ebert, despite all the ways in which we disagree. And and he was yeah. very um, he could be very reactionary and set in his ways. He could, but he also but that's, he that's really, really low. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, Ebert, like, you know, I can't imagine like, Ebert doing that. I'm yeah, not, I'm like, not saying break her legs. If someone broke her legs, it wouldn't mind. So. <laughs> I mean, you know, okay, like, Ebert, you know, um, I, I certainly disagree with his takes. Like, frequent guest uh, uh, Mike Rosen, ask him about Ebert sometime. He'll, uh, he will hold for it. Yeah. <laughs> he's not a, He has opinions, yeah. But, um, you know, he loved cinema, and, you know, I believe that he took back some of his early, like, reactionary takes, but... And I, I think he was a... No matter how you slice it, he was a very important critic. Right, that's also true, you know. You know, he, he made the profession visible. Yes. Um, well, you know, that's just the thing. Like, he's living the high life and getting away with so much, and then... <laughs> Well, that's what happens when you're the Pope of cinema. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that um, just uh, I'll probably I'll probably hack this out because uh, like I'm yeah. trying to find the uh, yeah because um, I, I wanted to look up and make sure that I wasn't um, being unfair. But uh, Ebert, at the time The Devils came out in uh, July '71, he gave it zero stars. Wow, wow. that's really. Uh... <laughs> That's really brutal. Yeah, which is um, essentially... And I, I basically can't imagine any excuse to do that aside from prudery. Yeah, he gave yeah. like one other movie Zero Stars. It was like Sharknado or something where it's just like, look, see, if something, you're the... So you mean something literally worthless? Yeah, yeah, right. Oh, I, no. I, re- I remember one of his um, one of his, his real Smackdown reviews was for, um, I think it's called Kick-Ass. And yeah, I, I really agreed with him there. He was totally correct in saying that that movie had no value and shouldn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but on the other yeah. hand, he liked the cell. So, Ooh, huh. really? 
he really loved it. And and I'll I'll give it this. It has some wonderful costumes and set pieces, but that's it. Yeah, but that's love? It. Holy yeah, shit. He really liked it. Because I went and saw I saw that shit in the fucking theater and I was like, what the fuck am I watching? Not not because like, oh, this is so crazy. It's like this what was it what is all this cool you know, production design and service of. Like, this is... Right. Yeah, that's the real question. Crap. Yeah. You know? Um, but yeah, that, it's, it's such a weird reaction to the devils because basically you're saying that, you know, this movie has no value whatsoever. And it's like, really, like, not even... Okay, fine, like, if you don't... You don't want to come at the church, which is like... Yeah, but I mean, maybe... fuck not? Maybe be more cognizant church. of it. Yeah, like... But, you know, like, nothing, nothing of value in the, the direction, the acting... You know, produ- production design, set design, uh, right. soundtrack, sound mixing, like nothing. Nothing, dude. Seriously? Yeah. I'm, well, uh, I think people have a really, really intense emotional response to um, to anything that to them appears to be pornographic. Yeah, but I mean, like, they and need the devils, to... You know, The Devils is pornographic, I would say, and I think that makes it better. I don't think there's a hard line between art and porn. I agree. I make art. I, I would consider it pornographic. Um, yeah, like I, I don't see how you, um, and you know, it's not like Huxley like pulls any punches either. Like when he has to get explicit, like he'll get explicit. Like he's like, yeah, you know, pretty much this this nun said Latin, you know, fuck me, Christ. Right. <laughs> well, and and also like because like talking about you know Siskel and Ebert writing off horror, uh, like I don't see what the point is of making art that isn't provocative or that isn't really pushing the envelope because i've seen uh so many like mid-2000s indie horror that is so like reductive and rote and just like aping whatever popular tropes tropes are and i'm like you put a lot of time and money into this and like you didn't have anything interesting or provocative or or like revolutionary to say you're like well i'm just gonna kind of say what everyone else says and it's like well why does this even exist then yeah. So, like, so does give something zero stars for being that outside of of like a safe sentiment? I think that that really does it does does media criticism a disservice because you want something that is that I, provocative. I agree with you. And and as as strongly as I feel about it, I feel like I'd rather talk about what we love about the movie than relitigate Ebert's weird reaction to it. <laughs> no, I agree. I just found that um, historically kind of interesting. And the other reason that that those types of reaction interest me historically is like, you know, jumping forward from the time the movie came out in 1971 to now, when this movie, even after, you know, several decades, is still so hard to get a copy of. Yeah, it's been almost 50 years. Yeah, like just um, really hard to find an unexpurgated or relatively yeah. Unexpurgated version. It's still yeah. There is no. Uh, there's no complete cut. Essentially, yeah, mm. exactly. Um, the version that we had slipped to us is um, cobbled together from uh, not just the Blu-ray but also the uh, VHS copies, like yeah. random bits of footage. Yeah, and you can definitely tell what that, parts were censored, yeah, which made it to VHS. But maybe um, quote unquote cooler heads were like, oh no. I can't do that you know yeah. oh no you can't you can't show the nun squatting on the finger of jesus or and whatever. the priest jacking <laughs> off to it which yeah. again like <laughs> why do they call us the devils they should have called the aristocrats 
that scene where uh, Father Minor is up in the the like uh, what do you call it? The rafters, basically. Yeah, yeah just he's kind of watching the rafters the of the mausoleum, and he's or not the mausoleum, the uh, the convent. Yeah, and he's just furiously jerking it under his vestments. Yeah. It's a really incredible scene, and then later you learn that he like went insane after this experience. Yes. Yeah, like, um, and again, like, right out of Huxley, because uh, they describe, like, how the aftermath of these possessions uh, affected uh, the people, you know, who were a part of them. Mm-hmm. Um, right. A lot of the officials just kind of, like, fell into ill health and died very soon after. And, you know, right. like, for example, Father Mignon, like, just went nuts like what have you been confronted by like just drove him out of his gourd yeah well, you know it's all it's all tied back again to repression in my mm-hmm. opinion he's led a repressed life these women have, have led a repressed life and, and just, just his persona like that right. um, he's, that he's tight buttoned down. that tight trim like form like the yeah. black vestments and the yeah. the like fucking like razor Tonsure haircut, yeah. like that just that just evokes like complete like and total repression. Yeah, but when when Barry comes in and and you know yanks the lid off of all of this, it's instantaneous. Everything that they have ever tamped down in themselves comes out at once. Yes. Yeah, it's like keeping a dog kenneled like twenty four seven. It's like yeah, you're gonna damage that thing's psyche. Yeah. Right. And and when you let it out, you will not like the result. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because like the women, um, the nuns, like you know, they tear their clothes off um, and they just fall into like these these ecstatic like sexual paroxysms with like Mignon. It's like there's this horror in his face and the camera is zooming in and out yeah on his face is he's like just like masturbating. just like ah boobs ah. <laughs> and it's just like just the the terror that's associated with it yeah just like oh the nuns look like they're having fun it's just like oh i didn't know that we could actually do this stuff like oh like all rules are off oh shoot right oh. It's, it's so frightening for him. yeah yeah. Um, the notion he, that you he, like he loses himself in that scene because this thing is so fast around him. Yeah, that 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 you're no longer bound by the sort of like prescribed set of of rules of uh, propriety. Yeah, and then this, he's this the one reading. Okay, go ahead. Oh no, I was going to say that um, we should also mention that Mignon is also the one who essentially becomes the Judas figure. Yeah. At the burning, um, he is told to give. Uh, Grandia the kiss of peace, and as soon as he does so, the crowd starts calling him Judas. Yeah, you know. So you know, and that kind of ties into as you know, Grandia being like a, a martyr, oppressed figure. You know, but mm-hmm. like, that might that was that was probably another uh, thing that just basically drove Mignon into ultimate madness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe maybe this is is reading too far in to the scene. But I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that as he's masturbating and, and looking down at, you know, this whole world that had order and now doesn't, he's seeing how badly these women's lives have been deformed. Yes. And his own life, in turn, how badly that's been deformed. And to have your worldview rocked like that and then to have nothing to do with that realization, you know? Where do you go from there? 
Yeah, we don't really get much insight into his character or his backstory, but yeah, I mean, I could see that applying just as well to him. Yeah, and I mean, that that does kind of make sense because, and um, again, going back to um, the devils being so controversial to this day, you know, people don't want to engage with it in complete form. Um, You know, the... Like that scene is uh, described as the rape of Christ because, you know, that all these uh, nuns and revelers just basically fall upon the crucifix. You know, it's supposed to be basically like the, you know, kind of like the last, you know, extremate, like the ultimate defilement. Um, It's kind of like how, um, (sighs) bear with me while I I dig this out of my brain. Dig. Um, in our society, like currently today, like I think that, you know, the most controversial things tend to be things like, um, you know, racial slurs. Those are the things that you can't say, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, oh, you shouldn't like, you know, the Come Town podcast is like the most like outrageous thing. Right. You know, but, yeah, um, zero stars the, on iTunes. <laughs> so, yeah, weird. Back in the day, um, the worst thing was blasphemy. And I think right. I heard this said about um, Deadwood. Okay. Is that, you know, because there's so much cursing in the show, but it's all stuff like, you know, motherfucker and cunt mm-hmm. and whatever. Uh, cocksucker. That well, shows up fairly often, yeah. Yes, um, that delightful, uh, That delightful word, cocksucker. Yeah. Um, so staccato. The, if we were talking about the time the show is taking place in probably like the worst thing that you would say would be, you know, variations of God damn or other blasphemies. It wasn't okay. necessarily, uh, they made that choice consciously. Yes. To have period swears, everyone would sound like Yosemite Sam. Yeah. Or, <laughs> so they yeah. went with something that, that would convey it to a modern audience. Yeah. Because um, the only thing that could have improved Deadwood is be more Yosemite Sam dialogue in the show. <laughs> yeah, because but you know, like, um, because nowadays, goddamn, isn't like necessarily. I mean, you know, unless you, you know, grew up around like evangelicals or evangelicals mm-hmm. or something, it's not like the right. worst. But thing. in the context of the film and the, and the history that it's vested in, these are really extreme social transgressions. Yes, so this would be like you know, it's like when Sinead O'Connor ripped a picture of the Pope in half. Yes. Yeah, why was that such a big deal? <laughs> because people like people liked Catholics a lot more than they do now. Which, and, you know, that is Honestly, Sinead did nothing wrong, and I support her forever. Yes, we and we said this on um, our last episode where we discussed um, uh, Jonathan King. Um, Sinead was right, and she took yeah. the world to shit for it. But fast forward to now, and it's like, what? It's like, I tried telling you. Yeah. You know, like maybe next time we should listen to the woman who's literally in a Magdalene laundry. Like, maybe she knew what the fuck she was talking about. Yeah. But, and, you know, that's what that's what kind of, um, you know, knocks me out about the devil still being, like, fairly taboo is, you know, after all that we've heard, not just, and it isn't just the Catholic Church. Uh, you know, just today, like, I was reading about... Um, the Southern Baptist. Yes. You know, like, you, oh, if you're a woman or gay, you, you know, can't 
be like a priest or whatever, like in a Southern Baptist church, but we'll let convicted sex offenders in, like no problem. And yeah. are, know, are they kind of on the same wavelength? Is that why? Or well, like, no, yeah, they are. There was a massive class action lawsuit. Yes. Today revealed uh, was it over two hundred victims of sexual assault within the uh, within the Southern Baptist Church, and it's it's not like it's not like groping at a party. It's really dark stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, it isn't just the Baptist. I, I heard the, 700, but that could have been a different you know, you, you story. Know, I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> That's yeah. right. And, yeah. you know, it's not just the Baptist. Like, this has also happened with, uh, you know, not just Catholics, but, like, Jehovah's Witnesses. Right. Uh, certain Mormons. Mormons. Protestant sects. You know, it's not, like, we, we joke about Catholics, and it is true, but it's like, mm-hmm. you know, but... God the institution of a priest, you know, hierarchically setting a person above other people in a way that does not permit rebuke or oversight, mm-hmm. and then subjecting the person in that position to a lot of super weird personal repression is a terrible combination. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because and- you, you're going to get someone who wants to have a lot of power explicitly, mm-hmm. and that's why they're doing this. And who then is frustrated in the exercise of that power. Yeah, exactly. It's not going to be good. Yeah, and so, but, you know, nowadays you still can't get a complete copy of the devils because, God forbid, you see these naked women rubbing all over crucifix. Yeah. Like, how is this still, like, so crazy, you know, that we can't handle seeing it? I mean, staring down the barrel of tens of thousands of abused children, and and this is is <laughs> this, this is the thing that's going to fail, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, um, and that's such an interesting scene too, because you know, and you were joking about it earlier, but this is the consummation of their marriage to Christ. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they if are, they're told that you know they're married to him, yeah. Yeah, and like, um, what other outlet do they have? They've been directed. They've been you know pushed in this one direction their entire adult lives. Mm-hmm. So, like, I again, like, I just don't understand, like, why you know this is like still, um, you know these these like Ken Russell scenes of excess are still like so reviled. Yeah, I like, think yeah, I don't. I don't think there's any any squaring that circle. It's it's just <laughs> a weird hypocritical thing. Well, I think, like, the real takeaway from this, it, I mean, in my opinion, I don't know, like, uh, I don't know if the message you take away from this is that religion is bad or people are bad. But I think the reason that the movie gets so so censored and sort of um, uh, uh, is so repressed is because it's us asking these questions. And these are uncomfortable questions to ask about institutions and religion and, you know, the nature of power and how that power is exercised. No and, one wants to stare at an open wound for two hours and think about it. Right, yeah. You know? I mean, it's it's like Grandier with the woman, the plague victim at the beginning. He has tenderness and empathy for her, her corrupted body. And that's something that people cannot bring to this movie. Because it means looking at themselves and the systems in which they live mm-hmm. and entertaining thoughts like this is a perverse abomination. Right. Um, and I think the, the movie ultimately has a, a tremendous de- depth of empathy and a real sense that human life is frail and breakable and 
beautiful and transitory. I mean, Grandier's final speech as he's preparing to be burned and then being burned is about how afraid he is and how he does he has no invulnerability or answers for anyone. Mm-hmm. He's just he's terrified and he yeah, he really... For God's sake, the, the man's own son is watching him die. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because, um... His, his little bastard. Yeah. Yeah, um, Philippe's, uh, um, pregnancy results in this child who's held up to yeah. see his father burning to death. And right. This is a great, this is a great source of fun for the... People. Yeah, and and you do get a um like a little bit of uh, a reaction from yeah you know, the from the mother too that kind of is the same as the the two kind of you know snake oil surgeons that are just like well you know we made it through this but you right, did well this is also this is her revenge on him too yeah so it's yeah more, it's more complicated for her I think yeah yeah but um, you, you see that both of them like exist as part of the system whereas he you know he's sort of ground up by it and then spat out yeah uh and in fact the the last little hunk of him that piece of his thigh bone yes winds up getting used as a dildo by sister Jean. <laughs> so so he does have a, a life beyond his life <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> And I hadn't noticed too, like how just the way that yeah. the you know the the half a thigh bone is presented with like the two like knobs of, that make up the knee, you know, upright, and you're like, you know what that looks like? Yeah, it's so right, and it's it's you know it's um it's this really poignant image because all of a sudden all of her fantasies are boiled down to reality, and and this is what's left as a charred bone. Yeah, like mm. that's her inner life touched the real world, and this was the result. That's dark as fuck. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's why you can't have art expressing opinions. God, I'm telling you. <laughs> well, again, that scene, that shot was obviously too much for certain cuts of the film because in the version that we saw, that yeah, was from we saw the VHS a, quality, a degraded VHS yeah. quality. But like, like it's saying something really potent. Like, yeah, it what is. are you improving by excising it? Yeah. Well, again, it gets people talking and questioning things, and that really is the ultimate problem of the devils. Yeah. It's the, yeah, it leads to too much introspection. Yeah, can't have uh, that. Things might change. Well, I mean, there's this great quote from the Americans. Uh, I don't know if either of you guys have seen that, but the FBI agent, Stan Beeman, who's played by Noah Emmerich, and he's just very quiet and mild and soft-spoken. And we know that he was embedded with white supremacists before the events of the show. And someone asks him how, you know, how did you penetrate that organization? How did you do this? And all he says is people love hearing how right they are. (laughs) Oh, that's Uh, so true. Wait, and, you know that's, I, that's that's modern film. That's the Oscars. That's that's driving <laughs> Miss Daisy winning. People want to hear that they're already good. Yes. Yeah. It's, they don't. They don't want to hear that maybe there's something extremely sick and wrong with the world around them, and and maybe in their own hearts. Yeah, it's sort of that reaction to make America great again to be like, oh, America is already great. And it's like, right? Like what? Yeah. <laughs> those are our two options. 
Yeah, for you maybe. Yeah. For other people, it's uh, maybe not so great. Yeah, exactly. But no, that's that's um that's really true because and again, like going back to the ending of uh, the Devils again, you know, which really leaves you with with nothing. You know, again, Madeline like. Well, it leaves you with a bunch of unanswered questions. Yeah, or Madeline you, like, walking the mm. road alone, like with the ruins of Ludon behind mm-hmm. her. It's like that's fucking brutal. Like for all the the madness and violence that happened in the town of Ludon, like what did it achieve? Yeah, it's like this is why we can't have nice things. And um, you know, certainly in the in the in the book, um, a lot of the um, the officials of the church are kind of convinced that performing this exorcism and, um, you know, kind of the public humiliation and destruction of Grandier will, you know, only strengthen the church. It will only lead to more people like, you know, kind of pledging themselves to the church. Um, people are brought to see the exorcisms and the hope that they might be converted. And, um, Huxley includes actual historical accounts from people who saw these exorcisms happening and were just like, yeah, I didn't convert. Because, like, what the hell was that? <laughs> <laughs> he puts it more eloquently. It's a dog and pony show, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's 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 a performance for, you know, what end exactly. But yeah. Anyway. There, there's kind of a, an interesting side note, too, about, um, you know, the church's problem with uh, what... Uh, Ludon about um, yeah he isn't just going to uh, protect Catholics in the city he's going to protect everyone as part of his city right. when it's like oh shoot well, you might be treating people of different religions equally we can't have that yeah 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 exactly so there's yeah, certainly more humanistic for the Protestants as well as the Catholics in the town yeah it's like they're all you know they're all my peeps <laughs> but again like you know to treat People who you're, you know, immediately, uh, you know, uh, sort of tasked with ruling over and then treating them well, regardless of what people far away from you say to do, it's that's ah, too complicated. <laughs> Have we torched this one? <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I rate it zero stars. <laughs> Gretchen, is there anything that you want people to take away from the devils? So, The Devils has been a really formative film for me, creatively, and morally, even, Mm -hmm. I would say. And first, I encourage everyone who's listening to watch it. Uh, Find a good copy. It might take a little bit of hunting, but it'll be worth your time. And watch it. And second, I would say that if it makes you upset, sit with that. Because the most important thing you can do as an artist is look at things that repulse you and try to understand why. Because at the root of that is understanding prejudice and the disgust we have for people we think of as lesser than ourselves. And our disgust for the parts of ourselves that we hate the most. And I think if you can learn to look at that you can learn to love and accept people who otherwise you would never be able to, to share space with. And ultimately that's, that's what art is. And that's what horror is to me is this invitation to a deeper, more dangerous, more demanding empathy. 
That's so potent. I don't think I can add anything to it. Yeah, a, a dangerous film makes you empathize with other people, for sure. Mm-hmm.